Alright. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you, Sheikh? Good to see you. Alhamdulillah, better seeing you. Hayakallah. We um we were talking earlier, uh, and you're Sheikh Fezaka for the audience. We were talking earlier about how you were, uh, I was a little delayed coming in. Um, and uh, I guess in the meantime, you were doing a run? I was. Mashallah. How far did you run? I didn't run far, but it was 26 degrees when I was Mashallah. running. Mashallah. Shorts and short sleeves. And I said, man, I'm just going to give this a try. And I did two miles, a uh, mile and a half, maybe in 20 minutes. And it was a really good run. You, you said to yourself, Memphis just had an ice storm. I need to get some exercise in. <laughs> I was, I, no, I actually just, I wasn't worried about the ice storm. I was looking at myself and I was getting a little bit, you know, too well-rounded. Okay. And I said, this has got to stop. <laughs> so that was, the, that was the motive. And I heard that you burn more calories if you run in the cold. I said, well, I'm going to weigh myself before and after. Oh, interesting. I actually didn't know that. Did you... um? Uh, when you were running, was it was the ice froze? The floor was it flo- uh, frozen where you were running? You know, it was not. But what was interesting is that you would hear a lot of cracking in the trees. Oh wow! And that was the ice melting, and that was really really interesting. And just hearing the cracking of the ice and then the falling of the ice, that was that was really nice. Did you lose electricity in the last two weeks? We did. Alhamdulillah, uh, it wasn't two weeks. We lost electricity for one night. Oh, subhanallah. Yes, and but alhamdulillah, we at least in our area, uh, power is restored. I know that some of our community members are still without power. Did, so, did you, in your case, what did you do? Um, so what I did is I got, I gathered the kids around me. We all <laughs> shared one blanket. No and way. I was, I was telling them stories. I was just like going back to our days in in East Africa, mm-hmm. and I was telling my boys, look, this was like the daily thing. We did not have electricity at night, and we literally went to bed telling stories, jokes, and singing. So I said, let me tell you how we did it. So I had a bucket, and um, I started singing, and they immediately said, can we skip this part? <laughs> um, so that was not fun. But then I started with the stories, and that was really, really nice. It was very captivating. Uh, wife was there. She pretended she was not listening, but I know that she was listening. Um, and, that was, and that was really nice. Mashallah. But it's still cold, though. How'd you fall asleep? Um, so we continued um, to talk, and it was 58 degrees by the time that, like inside, indoors 58. Mm. That's like a very cold if you're used to 73 74 and but alhamdulillah we we managed and mm-hmm. i think that part of also what took place is i was just like looking at this and say man we are so blessed alhamdulillah and sometimes we don't even realize how blessed we are because despite the fact that it was cold we had options mm. you know could have gone to a hotel <clears throat> um many you know different community members called and they said we have power why don't you guys come and sleep you know yeah. sleep the night you know spend the night over and it was it was really nice we had blankets upon blankets alhamdulillah so i just kept thinking about you know syrian refugees i kept about homeless people in the city of memphis i said man we are really really blessed and sometimes we don't even notice how blessed we are so yeah. last night man i remember one of the boys said you know baba he said i am cold and i just immediately went and i just got um an extra blanket and the fact that, you know, he said he was cold and 
I think what he meant is it's not warm enough. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, Alhamdulillah, we still had, you know, an extra blanket that we were able to put on top of what we had. I was just thinking about, you know, what, what about all the fathers who hear their kids cry because it's really cold and yeah. they don't have that extra blanket to bring to them. What, what, what part of, you said East Africa is where you're from? Which yeah, country? So I was born in Eritrea in East Africa and I grew up in the Sudan. Mm-hmm. Both countries are located in Northeast Africa. Mm-hmm. So you're from Sudan originally? I'm from Eritrea originally, and I grew up in the Sudan. Okay, mashallah. When did you come to the U.S.? Long time, long time. 87. So okay. I came here in 87. Mashallah. What, what brought you here? Was it for education or work? Or? We came here as refugees. So what happened okay. is that there was a civil war that was going on in Eritrea, between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Mm. So we were, um, you know, we registered with the United Nations. And the United Nations, they have a program, a resettlement program. That's an opportunity for the extreme few. Only 1% of refugees actually get resettled in different places. So different countries, you know, they say we will take a certain number of refugees. Mm. I think the U.S. takes about 60,000 a year. The program started back in the 1940s after World War II, or I like to call it Western War II. Western (laughs) War II. And uh, a lot of Europeans were displaced. So the United Nations, you know, they set the UNHCR, High Commission of Refugees. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea was to resettle the refugees in Europe um, as a result of the war. And the program just continued. And of course, the biggest resettlement countries in the world, believe it or not, are not the U.S., it's not Australia, it's not Europe. Even though when you watch the news, this is the impression that you get. But the biggest countries are... Pakistan, Iran, Syria, Jordan, mm. Lebanon, Palestine, um, Kenya, Sudan. That's where this big resettlement is taking place. What about the Khalij though? Very few. Maybe, okay. maybe I know that um, because of the location, geographical location of Yemen. See, now mm. we're talking about refugees. We're not talking about immigrants. We're not talking about workforce. We're talking about people who move to a neighboring country because the situation in their own countries was not safe. So mm-hmm. you had a lot of Afghans that went either to Pakistan or they went to Iran, depending on where they were. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of Iraqis that went to Syria, a lot of Palestinians that went to Syria. Mm. And now you have a lot of Syrians that go to Turkey. Right. You had a lot of Iraqis and Syrians and Palestinians going to Jordan and, and so on. I gotcha. So you came in 1987. Where did you guys resettle to? Which state? We settled in California. Oh, mashallah. So that's where we were. So my sister was here before we did. And back then they had a program called Family Reunion, which, you know, through her, we were able to apply to join, uh, to have a family reunion here. And back then it was easy. Um, So we did join my sister here back in 87. Nice. Which part of California? Southern California. Okay. And then you somehow ended up in Memphis. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> it was a long, a long journey. In between, there was Virginia, uh, Philadelphia, Texas, um, Atlanta, and so on. Where, 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 where were you when your story with the, uh, uh, your current case with the FBI, where were you when that story starts? I was in Irvine, in mm-hmm. Irvine, California. I was the imam at the Orange County Islamic Foundation. Mm-hmm. And 
back then we lived in the city of Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was. And that's what I was doing. And also, I was working at Access California Family Services as a therapist, training mm-hmm. therapist back then. Okay. So you were an imam, um, and all of a sudden, for some reason, the intelligence apparatus of this country had an interest in you. Why was that? I mean, right now, looking back, I think they did not have a personal interest in me. I was just a person that fit the profile. Okay. A Muslim male. And like um, Brother Hassam Ailush from Care would say, you know, the FBI uh, developed a narrative. And that is, uh, there is local Muslim terrorists. Mm-hmm. And let's go and, and, and fish them out. And if you cannot find them, create them. So I believe that's what was happening. So was, was there a local crime that was committed and they were looking for someone with a profile like yours? What happened that they had to come and investigate you? No, it's been 15 years. Not a single arrest indictment has been brought up against any of our community members. Literally, it was all about, you had a lot of activism that was going on mm. in our area. The different MSAs were absolutely beautifully active. In our own message, we were politically and socially involved. And somehow an agent speaking to a group of uh, Orange County residents is quoted in the paper that the FBI is keeping a close eye and surveilling the Muslim community in Southern California. We read the news and we said, wait a minute. We thought we and the FBI are partners in this. We reached out to the FBI and we said, look, what is, what is going on? And, you know, we had a community hall meeting, and I think that's when it all just really didn't go well. Okay, so so there was no instance of a crime or something that happened. It was just you guys saw a newspaper article that said you're being watched, right? And then you just wanted to find out why you were being watched. The FBI suggested that we have a town hall meeting to address the community and, I guess, um, calm down the concerns of the community. Mm Mm-hmm. Stephen Tidwell, representing the FBI, comes to the town hall meeting. It was in the masjid, the Irvine masjid, ICOI, Islamic Center of Irvine. And we met there with the community. And I remember I had the paper with me, and I read a direct quote from the agent. The agent is saying that we are under surveillance. And he was speaking, you know, that this is not the case. And we pressed him, and the guy was... I think to put it nicely, he was talking too much and saying very little. Okay. He was really interested in let's move on. We're still partners. Let's just move on. And he really did not want to spend much time on addressing the concerns of the community. So the meeting doesn't really go well. Um, Later on, I find out that partially of why I was targeted by the FBI is because of what I said in that town hall meeting. I, I thought I was very polite. It's all on video. Uh, they said I was confrontational with the FBI. Um, I remember there was a, a point when I spoke to him and, and, and he looked at me and he said, are you calling me a liar? Which is very intimidating. And for somebody in his position, he yeah. shouldn't be talking to citizens this way. Yeah, yeah. And nobody was calling him a liar. He said, look, man, I just don't know how to reconcile what you're telling me versus a direct quote from your agent. 
And we gave him like all different options, like, can you write to the register? So, well, there is a freedom of the press. Many times, you know, newspapers would be willing to take a correction. Well, can you put it on your website? Guys, you're spending too much time on this. Let's just move on. Let's see how we can become partners. And that's what he kept saying, despite our appeal to like, look, can you publicly say that? And, and, and he did. He looked us in the eye and he said, we're not surveilling you. We're not keeping an eye on you. We're not spying on you. So, so just to understand this, you saw a newspaper article that said you and your community are being watched, right? <clears throat> you saw that and you, there's a town hall meeting and you're sitting with the FBI chief. You say, hey, you guys are spying on me. He says, no, I'm not. Not on me, on us. On, on us, right. right. And, and, and he says, no, I'm not. And then you say, but this is what I saw. And then he says, you're calling me a liar. Exactly. That's hilarious. And then you press him and they don't like that. And so all of a sudden he's on your trail. That's, that's what the FBI informant later on said. He was specifically saying that the FBI was really upset because somehow, uh, I think the word that he used is like I publicly, you know, confronted them. Wow. That's... Wow, that's hilarious. So, so what did they do? They started, did you see like some, you know, blacked out SUV following you around? What, what happened? So, no, so what happened is that the, the FBI had hired an informant to come and spy on our community, an ex-felon mm-hmm. pretending to be a Muslim. He came to the community, took the Shahada, and, you know, we gave him the three hugs, welcomed him to Islam, gave him a lot of business cards, took phone numbers, gave him phone numbers, invited him to our homes. And this is how the community, you know, welcomes people. Mm. And that's what happened. So for 11 months, this guy lives in our midst, visits our homes. And you know how it is. You know, we believe that when people um, uh, convert and come back to Islam, sometimes that happens at the expense of some of the social support that they potentially lose. So we want to make sure that we fill that lost, potentially lost social support that they have had. And what we do is, you know, you welcome the person, come on over for dinner, let's have lunch with my family, let's, you know, invite you for breakfast. I'll teach you how to make salah, I'll teach you how to read Quran, join the Arabic class, why don't you come to the new Muslim group, we work out, why don't you come and run with us, come and work out with us. And that's how he was received Mm -hmm. in the community. And what he was doing is, he was profiling the community. He wasn't even spying on specific individuals. As he told us, he would take a camera, come into the parking lot, take pictures of all the license plate numbers that are on the lot. Mm -hmm. He would pretend to be greeting community members as they come into the masjid, only to find out that there was a camera somehow in his shirt, and he was taking pictures of the people who come in. Mm -hmm. He had what looked like a keychain or an alarm, and um, he would be recording conversations of people. Pretend like he left his keys behind and the keys will be put in the imam's office until somebody claims them, only to find out later on that he was actually um, recording conversations that take place in the imam's office. Wow. Uh, you can imagine, I'm, I'm listening to this, I'm hearing this, and I'm saying, no, 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 I'm a therapist. I take my job very serious. And the most important thing that we do in therapy is we want to make sure that our clients feel safe, that our clients are accepted. We give them unconditional positive regard. We don't judge them, and we promise them confidentiality. Because in counseling sessions, when people come in, 
they would be sharing some very, very intimate details of their lives with yeah. you because they trust you. And sometimes these details can be compromising and potentially embarrassing, potentially socially unacceptable, but they feel that this is a safe setting where they can just put that facade and just be. And to find out that somebody was potentially recording these conversations, potentially later on, you know, be using it against these people, to me, that was like a, a big, huge offense to find out that this is what the FBI was doing. No, yeah, for sure. But my question is like, what did you guys do about that? You found out he was recording you. Well, how long for, first what was it? The so period? he was in the community for 11 months. Okay, so about a year you're being watched, recorded conversations that were personal sometimes. What, what did you guys do about this? When well, you what he out? was doing is that he was actually going around asking a lot of questions about jihad. Like he was really interested oh, in wow. violence and jihad. You know, asking questions about, you know what, I, you know, I've got access to stuff. And like when people felt this way, they said, well, this is, this is not how we do things in our community. That's, that's unacceptable. And people tried to explain to him, you know, the whole, what our beliefs regarding jihad is. And it got to a point where people were really, really feeling uncomfortable. And I remember one particular conversation. This brother calls me on the phone and he said, look, this guy, Craig Montiel, has been asking me about jihad and he's been saying this and that. And I remember on the phone I said to him, I said, look, this guy is either stupid or he's trying to get you in trouble. Mm. In either cases, you need to stay away from him. Later on, Craig Montiel said that the FBI was listening live to that conversation. Wow. And they called him and they said, you need to bring this conversation to an end. Fazaga and this guy, they're having a conversation. You call that guy and you need to bring this conversation to an end. And I remember as I was talking to him, he said, Sheikh, he's calling me right now. I said, brother, you need to stay away from him. He is either stupid or he's trying to get you in trouble. And he did this with several members of our community. And we felt very uncomfortable. So we called the FBI. We, remember, mm -hmm. we, the Muslim community, called the FBI and we said, look, we believe we have a terrorist amongst our midst. FBI, the same guy that attended the meeting, is now receiving a call by Hossam Ailouj from CARE. Mr. Tirwell, we believe we have a terrorist in our midst. Oh, please tell me. Well, he's a convert, a white male. You know what? Why don't you just call the local police department? Wow. Hey, Stephen, you didn't even ask for the name. You, you, you know what? Just, just call the local police department. You don't want any more information about this guy? Just call the local police department. We call the local police department. Local police department asks, well, has he done anything? No, we're just waiting for him to do stuff so that we arrest him after he does what he wants. <laughs> yeah. And we ended up, you know, um, having a restraining order against him. He was very upset. He leaves. We don't see him for another year. After a year, he comes on TV. There is a press conference, breaking news. Craig Montiel saying, I am not a Muslim. I was never a Muslim. I am an informant. Been working for the FBI. My wow. job was to spy on the Muslim community. And he spilled he spills the beans. I mean, I really, really, he spills the beans. He speaks about who his handlers were, gave us the name, not to us, but he gave the names of the FBI agents, referred to as his handlers, what his mission was, 
how much he was getting paid. He was getting paid $11,000 a month. That's a solid, uh, that's a solid, that, that's a lot right of there. money. That's yeah. like, uh, that's good money. Yeah. <laughs> what did he do? Pray five times a day, visit different masajid here and there. He would speak about how they told him to rub his forehead to appear more devout. Had people teaching wow. him Arabi, um, changed the name. And he, he just had a, a story. And that's when we said, wait a minute. This is like around the same time that we had that town hall meeting when the FBI reassured us that they were not surveilling our community. They were not spying on our community. They're liars. Yeah, for sure. Two years go by. The FBI is not denying it. The FBI is not admitting it. But this guy is saying, look, this is really what I did. And he is telling us that this is what's going on. So finally, there was a case in the community. It was like some immigration case. And the FBI had information, and they said that they got the information through their informant, Craig Montiel. And that's how the connection was made. So for the first time, the FBI admitted that Craig Montiel was working for them. And that's when we decided we need to file a lawsuit against the FBI for religious discrimination. So before we dig into the lawsuit, is there a reason why that he went public with this information? Because that, that's self-incriminating, right? Like Because you, you, he, he's sworn to secrecy when you join the FBI. You, like, okay. you sign off on some rights. That's a good question. So it turned out that he had a suspended sentence. I think it was some either fraud or drug possession, I really don't remember. It was supposed to be 11 months long, and the FBI said, look, if you do this for us, you don't have to worry about the sentence. And now that his okay. cover has been blown, they just take him and put him in jail. Because in jail, by the way, he was also a snitch for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the police. So now they take him, and he is in jail now for wait, 11 wait. months. Wait, can you, can you step back? So he was working with the, F with the FBI because he wanted his sentence reduced? While he was in jail, he was working as a snitch. He was a snitching. He was a spying on the prisoners while in prison. FBI saw him and they said, look, we've got something big for you because you look Middle Eastern and we believe that we might have a mission for you. Mm -hmm. And he got excited. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And, but he had a sentence of 11 months for, I believe, like I said, it's either fraud or I think it was fraud if I'm not mistaken. Right, so he's spying on the Muslim community to commute his sentence for whatever... That, is, that was his hopes, yes. Okay. When his cover was blown, he was just taken and put in jail to serve his sentence of 11 months. And his cover was blown because of what? Because he went out and said, I'm a spy. No, well, what, what happened is that... Oh, he did say that after he, became, after, after he came out of jail. But prior to this, the Muslim can put a restraining order on him. So he was useless. Okay, okay. So, so because, he couldn't come to the masjid anymore. Right. So because he wasn't effective to the FBI, they just put him back in prison. Exactly. Okay. And then in prison, he sa or he comes out of prison and then he says, hey, I was an FBI. Or exactly. I was an agent for the FBI. An informant. An informant. He was not an agent. He was an informant for the FBI. Okay. So that's probably because he was mad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. About the fact that he had oh, to go yeah. back in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. So now you're fighting the FBI in court. What's your, what's your status there? So we filed a lawsuit, religious discrimination. I think we had like about 11 different um, points. So initially, you've got to remember this, this case is 15 years old. Wow. This is back in 2006. It's, we're 2022 now. Mm -hmm. So it's what, 15 years later. Um, and what's happened is 
so the first court that we took the case to, they dismissed the court under, you know what, national security. They said, yeah, what happened to you is too bad, but, you know, uh, national security necessitates right. that. We don't tell you what's going on, but we're going to dismiss the case. Well, that was not good, so we filed an appeal. Now, the appeals court looked at our case and they said, no, the court was wrong. They shouldn't have dismissed your case like that. You guys have a case and your case needs to be um, heard. FBI did not like the outcome from the appeals court and they decided, no, we want the Supreme Court to take a look at this case. Supreme Court now took a look at the case. We just had the arguments back in November of 2021. And we're waiting for them. So this process took 15 years wow. for us to get here. To get it escalated to the Supreme Court. 15 years. Wow. So, so right now, what do you think the wait is going to be to get them to look at this case? We don't know. I mean, the, the whole case is hanging on 1806. That's a provision. 1806 A, B, C, D, and F. And if you, you, know, you got a chance to hear the, uh, the argument between the lawyers and the uh, our lawyers, very grateful for them. By the way, the FBI and uh, the ACLU mm-hmm. and CARE, they've been you know really really champions in this in this case. And there was no way for us to be where we are had we not received the support from CARE and the ACLU. So you know, the whole thing is really about how do you interpret that part of the of the of the law. So we, we don't know how the Supreme Court is going to go with this, with this case, but for the cases that they heard in November, they have until June to make a decision. They can either ask for, um, what is that called, extension. Mm-hmm. And Allahu alam, you know, most likely they will send it to the appeals court to flush it out more. We, we, we honestly don't know. I hear you. So inshallah khair, um but you also have got to remember that our case is maybe, you know, this is the case that, that received a lot of attention mm-hmm. and we're glad that it, it did. And we're hoping that our story, this is, this is just not my story. This is right. the story of many people out there. Yeah. My story, I'm, I'm still out, alhamdulillah, and I hope and I pray I, I remain out. But many people based on this practice where the government sends informants, you know, um, a lot of people have lost families, got deported, put in jail, yeah. lost businesses. A lot of people have gone literally mad. I'm talking about like literally crazy. I have had clients who developed permanent paranoia because of visits that they've received from the FBI. And it, it really is a very, um, these are really, really sad stories. And we're yeah. hoping to bring, you know, to bring them to light. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I was actually gonna gonna say that this is replicated across America for Muslim communities. They always send some sort of FBI informant, some sort of guy with a recording device that tries to find you with some sort of a compromising information. Like you say something, a slip of the tongue, maybe, or they 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 might find someone that's weak or vulnerable or or, or mentally ill, get them to say something, and then that person ends up in jail. There was a person in our community. He was um, uh, he was actually a Syrian refugee. And uh, they sent an FBI informant to our community. And she was this lady. She was, she was a white convert. Same, same thing. Like, but she went deep undercover. Like, uh, I, I read a couple of FBI books. They're really fun to read. But they, they have this situation where it's deep cover, 
where it's actually you go in, you immerse yourself in the environment. So she married into the community, you know, and she lived within the community. She made all the salahs in the community, like she was deep in the community. She was embedded. And she, she, after a period of a few months, I think it was three or four months, she started to, whenever she was alone with a Syrian refugee, like driving him to his house or something, she would show him like a video clip of ISIS. And she would say, oh, these are my people. I love these people. And just, I'm sure she had a recording device under her jilbab, you know? And then as soon as he said something, he would be, that would, that would be it. But we ended up hearing about it and then she disappeared after just like a year of being in the community. But my question to you is, um, it's definitely not a new situation. It's been happening all over America. And it's started with like 9-11 era. Why do you think it is that they find us as a target that we can, you know, put towards the, like they, they basically, they take Muslims, right? And they, um, they battle them in, 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 uh, in the courts and whatnot. And they make them out to be anti-American, anti this country, Sharia law. Like our end goal is Sharia. Um, do you think this situation would ever change and what would it take to change it? Well, historically speaking, the United States has always needed an enemy. Mm -hmm. And the enemy, at one point, it was the Native Americans, maybe it was the Chinese, maybe it was the Japanese, it was the Chinese, it was the communists, it was the Muslims. So what you do is that you're just constantly, there is a need to have an enemy. Mm -hmm. An enemy that will justify all kinds of laws, regulations, wars you just you just name it i mean it's really sad what people don't understand is and you know getting into politics here but look into the economy here is 80 percent services four percent agriculture 16 percent you know industrial and mostly it is armaments and heavy you know um, um war equipment mm -hmm. so peace is not good for the economy so you constantly have got to continue that you know um, use the words of Henry Kissinger addressing a group of U.S. diplomats. He said, he said that your job is not to resolve the the um, um, not the situation was that conflict. You, he said your job is not to resolve the conflict. Your job is to manage the conflict. Oh wow! So you don't resolve conflicts because peace is not good for business. So what do you do? Manage the conflict. Make sure that nobody gets the, you know, the upper hand because they will crush. So what you do is you manage the conflict. Hmm. There's just this been need to have an enemy to, you know, to, um, to direct, to divert, and to distract um, the people from, from real issues. And at this point, it is, the, it is the Muslims. So it is either war on drugs, war on terror, war on this, war on that. You just... You just name it. But, you know, just going back to what you were saying earlier about how the FBI operates, I remember in my capacity as an imam, I would get phone calls from people. And I knew, like, you know, I'd be talking on this, like, I had somebody calling me up saying, Sheikh, I have money to donate. I don't want to give it to the people, to the real people. I said, what do you mean, the real people? <laughs> Come on, Sheikh, you know the people. I said, no, I don't. What do you mean? He said, I have money I want to donate, Sheikh. What do you recommend? I say, well, do you want to donate it um, locally or internationally? He goes, why don't you give me both? I said, locally, you give it to this organization. Uh, they help people here locally. Internationally, you give it to Islamic Relief. He goes, no, Sheikh, I want to give it to the people, Sheikh, who are going <laughs> to put it into good use. Sheikh, I'm willing to take the money myself. Wow. Like, you know, when people 
talk like this over the phone, these are not people who are charitable. These are not people. These are people who are trying to use you potentially to get a green card, get out of trouble. Maybe they're working for the FBI, but these are not genuine questions. Talking about the FBI, it's not even the slip of the tongue. We have heard cases about the FBI asking people if they're naturalized. English is not people, you know, many people, English is not their first language. I don't know what naturalized means, mm. but I know what natural is. Yeah. So, you know, natural, naturalized, yeah. you say yes. Naturalized means, the, are you a U.S. citizen? The guy was not, but he knew what the word natural meant, so he said yes. Well, that's lying to an FBI agent, a federal agent. Wow. That gets you six years in jail. Wow, what a game. Exactly. That's well, at that ridiculous. point, when you're confronted with this, well, look, well, we can overlook that if you do one, two, and three. One of the things that Craig Montiel said, he said that the FBI is mainly 80% white males. Right. And he said that for these things, it would be best if you can have somebody from within the community to spy on the community. Well, how do you get them to do that? What you need to do is that you need to find soft, you know, spots about them. Person who's having an affair, the person who's cheating on their taxes, mm. the person who is, you know, questioning their sexual orientation, the person who's doing some illegal financial transactions. You find out this information, use it against them, coerce them, compel them, blackmail them in order to do things, you know. Um, right. Um, you know, that they n normally they would not want to do, right. but they would do it now that you have this information um, on them. And that's why I tell people, I said, look, two wrongs don't make a right. If your taxes are not set straight, working for the FBI won't make that right. Or, you know, if they find out information about you, oh, you know, we, we know that you have a second wife. No, I actually have three wives and it's none of your business who I choose to marry or not marry. Mm. That's not, that is none of your business, why I do these things or why I don't do these things. So I tell people, look, we all have skeletons in our closets. We all have our demons that we are fighting. But, and that's where it's very important to our community, that you've got, this is not, a'udhu billah, to justify sin, but remember, the only time that we are allowed to look down upon a man is we are is only if we're trying to help them get up. But you don't wait for people, you know, to go down and then be kicking them when they are down. Yeah, yeah some of us out there are addicts. You know, some of us out there do stuff that we shouldn't be involved in. And we want to belong to a community to help us get out of that, not feel so pressured that we have to give in uh, to this coercion that's taken place by the by the FBI. I hear you. Yeah, no, it's um it's funny because they use these really ridiculous, you know, tactics to to supposedly find, you know, crime. But like my question is like why don't they just straight up ask like, "Hey Imam, if you see something, say something." We did. Right, no, no. But what I'm saying is the FBI doesn't do that. They prefer to go covert you know, and it's, it's, th there's almost not even a need to go covert. You could just go direct to the source, but I feel like they do it on purpose because they don't, not only do they not trust us as a community, but they want to find something that probably isn't there. And if they don't find it, they create it. Right. And here's the thing. If you see something, say something, 
In our case, we did. We saw how this guy was talking, you know, alluding to um, violence. We did the right thing. Yeah. We called the FBI. Um, uh, in the, they did a documentary on our case, and I think it was aired on Al Jazeera. And they had many different cases, um, you know, as like to the type of tactics that the FBI used in order to get people in trouble. I mean, it's like really like entrapment in ways that are just evil, like literally evil, after which the FBI is hailed as heroes because they foiled a plan. Yeah. There was no plan. You made that plan. Right, right. right. They built it. They, they set it up for the person. Literally. Yeah. Entrapping people left and right, you know, just, just seeing them get into trouble and then, ah, oh, we got you. Even yeah. though we're the ones that told you about it. Yeah. There's a, there's a great article. I think it was, I think it was, I read it on history.com, but they wrote a great article about the blind sheikh, Omar Abdurrahman, mm-hmm. who was like, you know, indicted for uh, the... Well, he tried to do the 90, uh, or he either did or tried to do the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And uh, there was uh, an informant, an Egyptian informant that they were working with to, you know, get into his uh, inner circle. And um, they foiled it and whatnot, but um, they, they were talking about how, what do you think, what do you think the best way, the, the interviewer it was talking to the, uh, the Muslim informant, they said, what do you think the best way is to um, reconcile between your community and the FBI? And, you know, he, he was doing, you know, a, in his instance, it was a pretty good job because this was a sheikh that clearly was a terrorist and he was actually brought in by the FBI. They, he, was, he, he was internationally known as a terrorist because he, he committed some sort of bombing in, in Egypt and he wasn't allowed into the United States. But the, the FBI smuggled him in or the CIA smuggled him in through Sudan for whatever reason. Some people say it's because they wanted him to promote the war in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. It was 1990. But uh, that's just speculation. But he was in the country and... Uh, the, this guy was talking about the whole situation and he said the best way for the FBI to reconcile with my community is for them to go direct to the source and melt the icy wall that they've built between us. And I read that and I was like, he's exactly right. You know, they don't work with us, they work against us. You know, they, they, they choose covert operation over asking, hey, is there a terrorist in your community? You know what I mean? And... Uh, well, just I guess what what are your thoughts on that? Are you aware of the whole case for? I I am yes yeah. I am and 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 I do know about that informant who was like doing the translation and the transportation for the um for the sheikh. I've seen many documentaries and articles about that about that um, about that case. See, the FBI is not interested in this, mm. okay? Because I mean, and it, and it's really unfortunate. You know, they have this rap song back in the 1980s when, when rap was real art that spoke about the, um, about the um, I guess, the concerns of the people, police brutality. And there was one particular line that said, you know, you addressing the police, you know, the artist says, you know, you protect us from the criminals, but who's going to protect us from you? Mm. You know, and, and this is what you have literally. It's like, you know what? Okay, so we go to the FBI when we, you know, when we recognize the criminals. But where do we go when the, you know, people who right. question are the, are the FBI themselves? What you proposed assumes that the FBI is genuinely looking for terrorists. Right. I really don't think that's the case. I think what the FBI has done, what the previous administrations have done, is that they have created a narrative. They need 
to continuously justify that narrative. Mm. Like just recently, as a U.S. president, if your popularity goes down, what do you do? Have an enemy? You've got to bomb somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Biden's popularity went down. And what did he do? Oh, he did just announce that, you know what? Oh, we just killed um, the head of ISIS. I think oh. that's like been the 20th time now they've killed the head of ISIS. Right, yeah. We really don't know how many heads they have. But that's just been the go-to solution. Mm. Your popularity goes down. You've got to bomb some people. And that's what they've been doing. That's how, it's been, that's how you get your popularity. Do you think it's a good idea for Muslims to join the intelligence apparatus, FBI, CIA, NSA, to maybe do a reform from within, if you think it's possible? Look, I, it's always good to have a, I guess, a seat on the table. But if you are not trusted, then, then that seat that you have is useless. Mm. So at this point, I think before we have a seat on that table, I think that the FBI needs to rectify the situation. At this point, we don't, we don't trust the FBI. So what's the way forward then? Well, an acknowledgement that the Muslim community, there was an article by an ex-FBI agent who has been leaking classified information for the past three years to write an article. Hmm. This happened in Minnesota. And the title of the article was, I have helped Oberi, I think is the name of the agent. He spent three years in jail for this. He said that what he has done as um, uh, he said that I've helped destroy people's lives. He would speak about all these cases that the FBI has had, all the informants that they've hired. And he said, you know what? Once they have your name somewhere, he said, literally, your life is ruined. Okay? And he said that what he did, and, and, and he's remorseful, he said that I have helped destroy people's ruin people's lives yeah and it was a very gutsy article but this is somebody from within who's saying like look whatever it is that we're doing to the muslim community is not good so i think an acknowledgement would be a good place to start because that's when you're saying like look we've we've done this the wrong the wrong way and even yeah. then i think it'll take time because the most important like it, 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 this is what we call like basic um, human sociology, the ABCs of sociology. If people don't know you, people won't trust you. If people don't trust you, people won't accept you. If people don't know you, don't trust you, don't accept you, people won't love you. And at this point, there is no trust. The most important element in any healthy human relationship is trust. There is no trust at this point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, by the way, it's freezing cold in here. I don't know if it's cold for you. But uh, it's very cool. I was going to say, what, what's your take on uh, uh, Muhammadu Salahi? I think is his name. He's the Mauritanian that was sent to Guantanamo. He was he was innocent from, from the get go. But what started what started it off was a phone call from his cousin who was actually part of like Al Qaeda or something. And uh, it was literally he had nothing to do with it. He just received that phone call and he became a suspect of interest. But they wouldn't leave him alone. Like they they they, they did what you said, like they were building a case. Uh, they had no case to begin with, but they held him for so many years. Have you seen his story? I have not seen his story, but something similar has happened to me. Yeah, <laughs> you, you have the story. I, yeah. I, it, this idea of receiving a phone call. Yeah. I remember I was in Canada. I don't remember where, Toronto, Edmonton. I honestly don't remember. 
And every time I would go to Canada, I would just like be held for like hours, like literally hours. It used to be very bad early on. Alhamdulillah, it's getting better now. And I remember one time I was just like really frustrated. And I said to the agent, I said, look, man, what is this, man? It just happens every time I come in here. He looked around and he goes, let's take a walk. Like literally, that's what he did. He said, let's take a walk. And he's like, I'm done now. You know, it's giving me my passport back and I'm going back in. He goes, let's take a walk. And, you know, the hallway, he looks at me and goes, you have a very bad number on your contact list or you received a really, a phone call from a really bad number. Mm. I'm saying, yeah, like my number is very public and by virtue of what I do, I get a lot of phone calls. I get a lot of invitations, but that's, that's really what happened. A cousin of mine got in trouble because of this, because somebody traveled from the Sudan. And you know, when you're going from the Sudan, you say, oh yeah, I have a cousin in America. Here, give him a call. He will help you. And he receives a call, again, from somebody that was on some watch list. But then my cousin was in constant contact with me. So now they're supposedly building a web of, you know, mm. a sleeping cell and because yeah. of a phone call that you've received. But that's, you know, then we are all in trouble. Like, I don't know how many WhatsApp messages you get, how many WhatsApp groups you get. Right, exactly. And yeah. M- many times I find myself in groups with people that I don't know. And, you know, somebody feels that your presence in this group is helpful or, you know, you might find the information in this group uh, useful. And like literally, I, I get added to groups. I have no idea who the person that added me or the people on that group. I have no clue what's going on. What, what do you think it takes to get you out of being in, in suspicion or under suspicion? Do you need like an American flag in your front yard? Do you need to sign up for your local, uh, uh, you know, military reserve? What's the, what's the solution when you're under suspicion? You know, and the sad part is, why are you under suspicion to begin with? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because remember that being on the defensive is the weakest position to be in, regardless of how good your arguments are, because it's always up to somebody else's discretion whether you're good or not. You're always waiting for somebody else to pass that judgment on you. Now, legally, you're not supposed to be a suspect to begin with. And what has happened is after 9-11, if you are a Muslim male between the ages of 16 and 60, by default, you are a suspect. Mm. And that is just all of us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. So if if I have a flag in my front yard, that doesn't help maybe? No, I, I, really don't, I really don't think, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of hijabis, you know, they would be wearing, uh, you know, the American flag as a headscarf. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would be doing that. That did not stop people from, you know, um, I guess, abusing them. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so going forward, like, what's, what do you think your advice would be for, for people that they don't want to fall under suspicion, you know, especially from within our community, or they, 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 they think that they may be being watched right now. What do you think the case is there? Oh, number one is always, always remember, make use of the resources in the community. I love care, man. I absolutely love care and I love what care is doing. Call your local care chapter. Let them know what's going on. Number two, 
Do not talk to the FBI. And I really, really mean this. Do not talk to the FBI by yourself. Be cooperative, be cordial, be civil, be nice, be very firm, be very assertive. Legally, you do not need to respond to the FBI. If they want to talk to you, sure, let's go to the care office. I want, I want a lawyer present as, as we do this. It doesn't matter how nice, hostile the agent is, just remember, do not talk to the FBI. What if it's or like a I've, basic question, though? Or as I have been saying, the less you talk, the more you walk. Yeah. Okay? I remember we had training. Okay? How to talk to the FBI. Do you have the time? Uh, what's... Okay, you want to just tell us when to stop? See, that was supposed to be a question. Okay. That was just supposed to be part of the training. Okay. So do you have the time? And what did you say? Oh... You, you just volunteered information. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, I was going to say about the FBI in particular, like if they ask me a basic question, like for example, if I'm at my house and two guys show up and they're like, hey, it's, I'm Johnny from the FBI. I'm like, what's up, Johnny? And he'll say, hey, have you, do you know of this terrorist case? I'm like, no, I got no idea. Is that, is that okay to do? Nope. You, you Remember, the FBI is not your friend. Okay, make that, just take that in. The FBI is not your friend. If you are a Muslim male, the FBI is not your friend. So what you do is, look, I would love to talk to you when my lawyer is present. Mm. There is a reason why people say this. Because see, now, Johnny, the agent, may be really nice, and they may, be, they may really, really be interested in a very basic question, but you know what, I just, I don't know which one to trust at this point. So I'd rather play it safe, and I would rather say, Johnny, I would love to answer your questions. Not right here, but let's just do... The For all the people, almost 100% of the people that were visited by the FBI, they said, let me have your card, and I'll have my lawyer contact you. Almost 100% of the people never heard back from that agent. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So why would you not want to talk to my lawyer? What is it about the presence of the lawyer that makes the conversation no longer welcomed? Right. Okay. So that's, that, will be, that will be number two. Number three, do not live in fear. Okay. I mean, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, with the listeners out there. I remember when the first the case came out and we found out that, you know, we've been spied on. I find out that. Uh, the FBI is listening live to my phone conversations. I would leave to come to the masjid for Fajr. And then I would, you know what, I would leave and then make a U-turn, come back and check out if there is a car, you know, waiting. Yeah. Um, because we've been told that, you know, the FBI likes to ambush people's homes when they leave after Fajr. I'd make a U-turn and say, man, this is just too crazy. Mm. You can't live life like this. I'm not going to be building prisons, you know, um, uh, you know, around my life. So do not live, do not live in fear. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, personally, I don't, I don't feel scared as a, you know, second generation uh, Muslim in America. I don't, I don't feel scared at all, but um, I feel actually like almost like feeling like if they pulled up on me, I'd kind of want them to just cause like, I want to say like, Hey buddy, I got nothing to hide. But uh, I hear what you're saying in terms of them building a case against you. Um, but, but see, now you're, you're pointing out something here. And that is 
the second generations versus the immigrants. Yeah. You've got to remember, see, we immigrants, where we came from, being visited by secret services, that would be like the equivalent of the FBI, mm. is like some very, very scary business. Right. Like that's a really, really scary business. You never want to be visited by the, by the, um, by the secret services. Yeah. So the way that we immigrants react is, oh my God, let's be polite. Oh, let's just answer all the questions. Right. Let's just accommodate. Let's just, you know, because we are afraid that if we don't do that, something bad is going to happen to us. Okay. So you've got to remember that this is a strategy that maybe got us out of trouble when you live under dictatorships, but supposedly living in a democracy, that is not how you survive. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I think that a good number of us immigrants, refugees, have not made that shift. It's like, you know what, we're just happy to be here. Please don't do anything to us. Um, we'll do whatever you guys want us to do. Yeah. And just let us, let us be. Okay. And, and also in sociology, there are, you know, uh, about the belongers and the owners of the culture. See, the way that you just speak, the way that you talk, the accent that you have. You are, a belong you, you are an owner of the culture. People like myself, we are belongers to the culture because the minute I open my mouth, you know, people would say, where are you from? Mm. You're, not, you're not one of us. Where are you? Where are you from? And that's not necessary. I'm not offended by that question because, because, because I'm not from here. Okay? Um, people would just recognize my accent. And I must point out that it's a cute accent, inshallah. <laughs> um, so so that, is, that is what happens. So mm -hmm. we are belongers to the culture. So the belongers always feel that they are at the mercy of the owners. They get to decide when they're in, when they're out, when they can stay, when they can leave. Mm. So the, the belongers are constantly very sensitive about not wanting to offend the owners because they're just happy to be here. Right. And, and that's how we've been behaving. I hear you. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely not something that I grew up with, not, not in terms of me and my friends. I mean, I've seen, you know, cases of uh, undercover agents and whatnot that I found out later. Actually, my first uh, experience with one, I actually, I learned about it when I was older, but apparently there was an, an agent in our community named Sheikh Saeed who used to teach my Quran class when I was six years old, which was probably like 2005 or four. So, uh, but he, he, he was an, an agent for the FBI who oh, the sheikh was? Yeah, <laughs> he was an Egyptian sheikh. And uh, uh, I was told by our current sheikh uh, when I was older that actually that person that was teaching you Quran, he was only hanging around because he wanted to secretly record us and he took pictures of my office. Which is ridiculous because like, well, I don't know what, what you're going to find. There's nothing there. So they, they just wasted their money on a salary for you. But um, yeah, it was nothing special. It was just there was just an old guy around that was new that was teaching us Quran. And, 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 that's, and, and see what you just said right there. Remember, see, when there is a, um, when you say suspecting somebody of drug smuggling, yeah. drug activities, you're very specific. It's like, this guy, we need to keep an eye on this guy, and we're particularly interested in one, two, and three. That is surveillance. That's targeted surveillance. Yeah. In our case, it's just profiling the community. Let's right. take a picture of his office. For what purpose? Oh, let's listen into the phone conversation. Let's take pictures of people who come to the masjid. Let's take pictures of the license plates of the people who drive to the masjid. That is profiling. And at yeah. that point, the entire community is being profiled. 
That's like Soviet Union style. Yeah, yeah. Or like <laughs> dictator's style. Exactly. And it's only happening to, I think it's only happening to us. Um, I mean, we haven't gotten rounded up and put in concentration camps like the, the Japanese had, or internment camps. Uh, but do you think we're headed that way? Do you think that's our trajectory? I hope not. You know, if you asked Japanese people back then if that's where it was heading, they would probably say no. But, you know, uh, in terms of human behavior, people are, are not looking for the complex, complicated answers. People are just looking for simple answers. The Muslims are the problems. It's like Hitler. The Jews are the problems. Mm. The communists are the problems. The Japs are the problems. Mm. You know, the masses are looking for this type of an approach to the solution of their problems. And if you give this to the masses, unfortunately, the masses respond positively to that kind of messaging. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, just one last thing, and then we can close for Isha. How do we, because we touched on it, but we haven't really answered the question, but how do we come out of this? What's the way forward from the situation? Because it's getting better, I think, because of, uh, China is a rising power, and it's challenging global U.S. hegemony. So I think we're kind of being shifted away, thankfully, from being the target to China being the target. But how do you think we come in, not only just, you know, not, is the light's not being shined on us anymore, but how do we play an active role in being a part of society? Look, to me, um, it's, it's what they call in sociology, it's the surest, but also the slowest process. When people know you, people trust you. When people trust you, people accept you. I don't think that we have done this at the absolute grassroots level. Ignorance breeds fear. People don't know us. People have ideas about us, very negative ideas about us. And I think if we start at that level, people will be able to relate to us. Relatability is not there at this, um, at this point. And, you know, I really don't think that it's at the policy level. I, I believe that, you know, it's not either or. Yeah, you do work at the policy level. I believe you do work. You have a table on the, a seat on the table. But I also believe that we need to do a lot more outreach work to the, to the masses mm. of the people out there. And the best way to get to do this is to get socially involved. Not just political involvement. I'm talking about like social involvement. Like, let our presence be an asset to whatever community it is that we go there. Mm. You know, I love the fact that um, I know for a while the, the, the MSA at UC Irvine, which was part of, you know, believe the surveillance that was there. You know, it was the most active campus in terms of it was the club that donated most blood to the uh, blood bank. That's very telling. Yeah. It was the club that donated most money to the victims of the earthquake in Haiti, for example. Mashallah, wow. It is the club that, and at that point, you know, look, man, this is not just about PR. This is about a group of kids who not only talk the talk, but they also walk the walk. Right. And I think that that type of involvement speaks volumes, you know. And that's why when, you know, Americans who feel comfortable around Muslims, all of the people who felt comfortable around Muslims are people who say, I have a Muslim friend, I have a Muslim neighbor, I have a Muslim co-worker. Because literally, ignorance breeds fear. Yeah, for sure. And I think just one issue with that is that we're so few in number, you know? We can't have that much outreach to people in the Midwest or 
deep parts of the south or you know what i mean like did, did you see the funeral of muhammad ali yeah for sure i mean that's 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 awesome did you, know? did you see you see what one man did man i was just watching that funeral i was like i was crying like a baby man like when you have got people chanting on the ali ali like millions upon millions of people watching the funeral like this is the muslim guy muhammad ali who yeah. chose to speak against the government who chose to uh, change his name who chose to change his religion but there was that thing about muhammad ali Mm. You know, may Allah bless his soul. I mean, you know, and I'm saying that maybe we are few in numbers, but so is the Jewish community. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And, and to me, that is a challenge. It doesn't make it impossible, but I would say that it can, it can be overcome, inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair. We'll go, we'll go ahead and close for now. Um, and uh, we'll stop for Aisha and, and maybe do another one. I uh, appreciate your time, Sheikh. Jazakallah khair. Good God, it's cold. It is very cold. Yeah, well, I'm like.